0: Welcome to Tales of Panem Hunger Games podcast. My name is Claire. My pronouns are she/her, and I'm glad to have you all joining me this week. Make sure to check out my social media, which is at Tales of Panem on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, for updates, episode information, and more. As I'm sure many of you noticed, it has been a few weeks since my last episode. Um, I do apologize for that. If you are not aware, I'm also a full-time college student, um, and so things have just been a little more busy than usual in the last few weeks. But I am hoping to be back to my usual weekly release schedule after this week. And I'm also hoping to return to my Wednesday releases rather than later in the week. Um, But anyway, I'm back now to talk about a brand new book, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Very excited about this. Um, As we are aware, the movie is imminently approaching. And by imminently, I mean it's still in like six months, but I'm very much in the headspace. So to me, it is imminent. Um, And I can't think about anything else but I love this book. I'm very excited to talk about it. This week's episode is going to cover chapters one through five, and as usual, I'm going to start off with a brief recap of the chapters. We follow an 18-year-old Coriolanus Snow on the day of the reaping. He has been selected as one of 24 Academy students to mentor the 24 tributes for the 10th Hunger Games. However, he is dismayed to learn that he has been assigned the female tribute from District 12. His tribute's name is Lucy Gray Baird, and when her name is called at the Reaping, she slips a snake down the dress of the mayor's daughter and then proceeds to sing a song. Coriolanus meets Lucy Gray at the train station when she arrives in the capital, and he ends up being transported with all the tributes to the zoo, where he is placed in a cage with the rest of them. He decides to use it to his advantage, taking Lucy Gray around to say hello to the crowd and the cameras. After the stunt at the zoo, Coriolanus is called to meet with Dr. Gall and Dean Highbottom. Highbottom lectures him for his behavior, but Gaul believes it shows promise and creativity. Coriolanus returns to the zoo, where he finds his classmate, Sejanus Plinth, attempting to offer the tribute sandwiches. They are wary of him, but Coriolanus takes a few and eats some with Lucy Gray, encouraging the others to take some as well. Sejanus asks Coriolanus to trade tributes with him, having been assigned the District 2 boy, but Coriolanus declines, opting to keep Lucy Gray as she has already become a crowd favorite. So something I'm sure we have all noticed right off the bat is that this book is much longer than all the other ones. Um, There's more chapters, so I'm doing, because all the previous books were three parts, with each part having nine chapters. This book, each part has 10 chapters, so it's going to be five and five instead of five and four, which just means there's a lot more for me to talk about. Um, So I'm going to get right into it. There's a lot of interesting stuff that we get right off the bat with this book, which was very exciting to me when I first read it. 3 years ago, literally on the day it came out, I was at the bookstore um reading it because it's first of all it's told in third person rather than first person like the other books because obviously all the other books are first person narration from Katniss's perspective. But this book is very interesting because while it is third person, it is also very much still from Snow's perspective. You know, we're getting everything through him. And so we're not getting him directly as the narrator in that like it is not being told First person by him, but it is still being told through his eyes from his perspective. We're still inside of his head. um And I actually think this is a really great choice because I personally don't really want to read a first person point of view book from his perspective, but I do love that we're still being like contained to how he sees the world because that's like the whole point of the book is like, you know, we know him as the evil ruler of Panem, but right now he is an 18 year old and what's he like? Um, and here's the thing. I'm going to talk about this a lot because it is like Susan Collins literally said, this is like her main reason for writing this book is that the theme that she wanted to explore is this like state of nature debate, which is basically the idea that like, is a person born evil or are they raised that way? Or is it like a matter of circumstance? That kind of question. And the thing with Snow is that like, we see right off the bat that he has had some hardships in his upbringing like we know that his family has lost their fortune and they're at the point where like they can barely afford to eat like things are tough for him however it is very interesting when you look at it like in in relation to the other books because obviously as our protagonist for the original trilogy we have Katniss who has also had an extremely hard upbringing and is facing a lot of struggles but look at Snow's like personality and his attitude towards the world around him because he right from the beginning is a person who he's very ambitious obviously he literally like is like I'm gonna be the president one day I'm better than everyone like he has a lot he has an attitude of like superiority and he thinks he is so much better than everyone around him and he also and we'll talk about this too he has like a lot of really weird and nasty like a like a possessive attitude towards lucy gray and like that's going to be a topic for upcoming episodes um but it is there right from the get-go and also just he's like he's so controlling and like manipulative and even and so it's very interesting how like right from when you first meet him like literally like first few pages i was like i Hate this guy. Like, obviously, you go into it hating him because, like, we've seen what he does in the future. Like, you can't just erase all of that from your mind. But it is very interesting. It's like, okay, maybe he's not actively like killing people yet. You know, maybe he is just a student right now, but that like attitude is already there. And so, even like, you know, a lot of this book is like, how does he get from where he starts to where he ends? But even from the beginning, I was like, okay, yeah. It's not a stretch that this guy turns into the presidents know that we all know and hate from the original books, Um, which I think is great writing on Suzanne Collins part. But it's also, you know, there's there's a balance to be had there where it's like, this is a character who I really hate. Like, I really think he's the worst and reading more of like what's going on inside his mind. I'm like, you literally suck. Like, I hate you so bad. But it doesn't make the book not enjoyable which I think is something that Suzanne Collins definitely had to think about when writing it 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 is like that was everyone's attitude when they first announced this book it's like why would I want to read a book about this guy he's terrible we already know that we already know how this story ends um and so I appreciate that one she didn't try to make it, it like oh look sad little snow poor little meow meow like it's not that kind of book but it's also not like why am I reading this long book about this guy who i hate and i just hate reading about it like it's it's there's a very interesting like intersection between those two things and i think that she landed it perfectly um but anyway speaking of how snow thinks about other people um one of the first things that we see that is repeated over and over again and we know this from the original books but it's kind of interesting to see it from like the flip side of it is how much the people in the Capitol think they're so much better than the people in the districts. Because even Snow, whose family is like literally broke, they literally lost anything, everything, both of his parents are dead, is still like, oh, but I'm so much better than the people in the district still anyway. Even though like speaking like status-wise and like monetary money, I don't know, I can't think of the right word for this, but like in terms of like what they have, you know, he's really not like that far above, especially the people of like the lower number districts. Like there are absolutely people in districts like one and two who are doing better or who are like better off than his family is right now. But he still is thinks he's so much better than them just because he's from the capital and they're from the districts. Um, which is obviously a really harmful and terrible attitude to have towards other people, especially when we see it with Sejanus. Oh, Sejanus love of my life. I am obsessed with you. You're everything to me. And trust me, in the coming weeks, I will be talking at length about his character. Um, But he is, he's obviously from District 2 and his family like moved to the Capitol because, you know, after, but basically after the war, after District 13 was quote unquote destroyed, um, the Capitol relocates their like military center to District 2 which is why District 2 becomes so important, especially, like, when we see in the later rebellion. Um, but the Snows had invested all their money in the weapons in District 13, so when those were all thought to be destroyed, they lost everything. Um, and, like, the flip, the exact opposite of that happened to Sejanus's family, where it's, like, suddenly District 2 is the most important, and that's where their family had their money, in, like, District 2 munitions, so they were able to like move to the capital and Sejanus's dad was able to like use his new found power and status to get Sejanus like enrolled in the good schools and the good you know like like that kind of thing um and Snow hates him partially because you know like I said they did kind of like flip like now the Snows who were like such a such a well-known and like prosperous family are now really struggling and the exact opposite happened to the Flint's And and so it's partially that, but it's also literally just because he's from the districts and he's like, I'm better than everyone from the districts because I just am like the reasoning behind it is literally just because they think they're better than everyone else. But Sejanus is, is very interesting because he, you know, he comes from the district and so he's still, first of all, he doesn't have that same attitude of like all the people in the capital are so much better than the people from the districts. And he also like, is not bought into all the like capital propaganda that they're trying to shove down everyone's so throats, especially now when it's like 10 years out of after a war and they're trying to like keep things stable and like keep the districts in line because everything's so very shaky right now and the capital is also trying to rebuild. Um what's very interesting is so Sejanus ends up being the mentor to the male tribute from District Two, whose name is Marcus, and they like literally knew each other. Like when Sejanus was a kid and was still in district two, which I know well you know that like the reason we got assigned that tribute is probably because his father pulled some strings and was like, "Oh, this is the best assignment because, like, you know, districts wanted to almost always win, and everyone wants to have the male tribute over the female tribute because of like physical strength and then just like, like in previous years, like the odds of a male tribute winning are higher. But the problem is that he literally, like that could have literally been him if he had, if they hadn't relocated to the Capitol and he is very aware of that and that is why he I mean that's not the only reason why he's so opposed to the Hunger Games like it's also just because like there are a lot of reasons to be opposed to the Hunger Games and he's like a sane and rational human being um but it does not help matters he literally has to mentor Marcus who is like basically his classmate like his former classmate like it it's really a messed up situation for him. And also that leads to Marcus, you know, not wanting to trust him because like the Plints are kind of like infamous in district two, because like when things got tense between the districts and the Capitol, they basically left and, and left the district and moved to the Capitol uh, because they think it is better. Um, so yeah, there's a very interesting dynamic there. So many interesting things about Sejanus, like I said, lots to say about him, so much. Um, but I'll save that. And also, you know, I'm going to eventually do a character episode on him, too. So there will be plenty of talk about him, not to worry. Um, but now let us talk about Tigress, another person who I love very deeply, um, who I literally will never forget when I opened the first page of this book and I'm, like, reading and it's like, oh, Snow's cousin Tigress. And I was like, no way. No way. And now whenever I reread or rewatch Mocking Jay, I'm just like, oh my God, what went wrong? Because they were extremely close. Because, like I said, Snow has lost almost all of his family, as has Tigris. So they both live with their grandmother. And they're very, very close. And Tigris also, because we know that she ends up becoming a stylist. And that's like her thing is in Mocking she's like, I was a stylist until basically Snow like forced me out. Um, and then that's why she's like. Yeah, maybe you should kill him Katniss, but the the weight that's added to that when you know that they're cousins and that they grew up together and were extremely extremely close. Um but Tigress is also a really good at what she does. Like she the book starts with Snow being all stressed because he doesn't like have anything nice to wear to the like to where the mentors are all going to watch the reapings. And Tiger's basically like works some magic on this this old shirt of his. Um and you know, we see her now she's like a like basically like an intern PA to like this this fashion designer. Um and we know that she does end up becoming a successful stylist, and we can assume that Snow played a hand had a hand in getting her there, and obviously something happened to make her hate him so bad um it's not that hard for me to imagine what those things could have been based on like who he is and who she is um but yeah she does have like a real true passion for like clothing design which like Mm -hmm. I am obsessed with because that's also like what I want to do with my life not be a stylist in the hunger games obviously but you know um I'm kidding, but anyway, the point is, I think she's so cool. I think she's so awesome. I think that I would like to be best friends with her. Um, Another thing I'm going to talk a lot about in this book, obviously, is music. I mean, one, one of our main characters is literally a musician, and two, music is also very important throughout the rest of the series, and there's going to be a lot of connections between this book and the other three books in that way uh, that I will get to once we get there. But also there's kind of, we obviously see music being used as a form of rebellion a lot in this series, but on the flip side of that, music is also being used here as a form of like patriotism or like or like support for the capital. Um, so basically like, the opposite of what we see it used for and what we will see it used for later in this book, um, which I'm like the main scene that I'm talking about here is like at the, um, how Snow's grandmother will like sing all the lyrics to the the like national anthem basically and how like they sing it at school and it's like again this entire series is very much like hey guys let's evaluate our real world while also looking at it through a fictional lens because like you know there are some real world (laughs) connections obviously because that's the whole point um but but yeah, so it's interesting to see like the two kind of sides of this is like music can be a really powerful tool in a rebellion, but it can also be the opposite of that. Um, and we get to see both sides of that in this book, which I love. Again, is something that we can get from seeing it all from the perspective of someone who is very much devoted to the country, devoted to the capital. Now let's talk about the actual Hunger Games themselves. Because this is a 10th Hunger Games and the big dilemma is, wow, no one wants to watch this. Shocking, right? No one wants to watch kids kill each other. That's crazy. Who would have have thought that that would be a problem? Um, So it's basically like, how can we get people to watch this? Because obviously it is is effective as a form of punishment of that, like, we're just going to take 24 of your kids every year and only one of them is going to live. But like, no one's watching it and it's not like, it's not working the way that it needs to work so they're like we need to get people invested in this and what do they get but miss lucy gray baird who is like literally a performer at her core um and snow who is very upset that he got what is essentially the worst possible assignment who is now like okay how can I use this to my advantage? Because that is everything for him. Is like, how can I flip this to my advantage? How can I use this to make me look good? How can I use this or use this person in many cases to get what I want? Um, Because that's always what it's about for him is what he wants, his power, his status, his money. It's always about him. Again, toxic behaviors from him right from page one. Um, But yeah, so they no one is really interested in watching this. And also, the games themselves are very different, and we'll see more of it going forward, obviously, but we see it immediately from the treatment of the tributes. In the original books, they are, like, pampered, and they are given, like, fancy food and nice places to stay, and they're famous, and they go on to be, and, like, all this stuff, which is, like, bad and terrible in its own way, because it's, like you're pampering all these kids just to send them off to die but what they're doing here is they just they don't even treat them like people and that is because they literally don't view them as people like when sejanus is like the people from the districts are people too that's like a controversial opinion like it's they are literally not even viewed as humans um which is not to say that they are viewed as people in in like the later games, because they're still not, it's because it's all being done for the capitals entertainment still. Um, but like the treatment of them is, is wildly different. Like they were literally here being kept in cages They're not being fed. They're like not given anything while they're there. And now they're like, Oh, we're going to give each of them like one interview. And that's going to be like a huge new thing. Um, which is just crazy to see like the evolution of it. And one thing I'm very, very excited about in the movies is To see, or the movie, singular, wish there were multiple, but anyway, um, (laughs) is to see, like, the evolution of, like, the fashion, the architecture, like, things that, you know, it's 65 years, or 64 years, I guess, earlier, the style is going to be very different, and I'm very excited about that, especially with Trish Somerville doing the costumes, because she is a genius, and I'm obsessed with her work, and I, and she's gonna kill it, um, but yeah, I'm very excited about that but yeah it is a very very different time period which I think is also a huge part of what makes it interesting and also like the capital looks very different because they're still rebuilding from the war like things are still very broken down um one little small little thing is that I think is super cool and interesting is the like connection like Connections between like the names in the books, and by that I mean like people who are like in some way related to people from the original books because it's the capital, every single person is a Nepotilla baby. Okay, I love you, Sajanus Plinth, but like Nepo baby 100%. 100%. I was gonna make a joke that literally would have spoiled this whole novel, um, <laughs> but it's so yeah, so like, first of all we, when they're, like, at the academy, they're, like, oh, this is Heavensby Hall, and I'm, like, that's so interesting, because I personally know someone named Plutarch Heavensby, uh, who was very much from the capital, so that one's, I mean, like, it's not that hard to figure out that Plutarch comes from a long line of, like, high-ranking capital people, um, because you can just tell, but a few more interesting ones, Miss Livia Cardu is a character in this book. Um, You may remember a character in the original books named Fulvia Cardu, who was also from the Capitol and was Plutarch's, like, assistant. She was not in the movies, but she was in Mockingjay um, in the book. And she's, yeah, she's like his assistant, basically. Um, Which I have some thoughts about that situation, Um, but it has to do with things that we learned about Livia Cardu later in this book. So I will remain silent I think that's literally going to be the last it's literally the epilogue that I'm that I'm referring to so it'll be a while before we get there um there's also one character named Arachne Crane um who just ha- she has to be related in some way to Seneca Crane not just because of the last name but both just because they're both the most like insufferable annoying awful people and I hate them both so much and like I just know that they are related in some way um once again, I cannot speak on this more until we read on a little bit and read more about Arachne. There's so many crazy things that happened in this book that I'm just going try so hard not to like completely spoil because I like the experience of reading this book for the first time is unlike anything else I've ever experienced. My jaw was on the floor. I was like the amount of times I gasped out loud while reading this novel. I can't even keep track. But yeah, so I'll try to, I'll do my best to avoid the spoilers, especially because I have had a lot of people message me and be like, oh my god, your podcast inspired me to read Ballad Song of Stakes. I'm like, you're welcome. And also, thank you. Um, so yeah, just a few little name connections there that I think are interesting. I have a million thoughts about, but I wanted to point them out just because, you know, we didn't pick up on them. Um let's talk about this song though that Lucy Gray sings at the reaping it's basically like nothing you can take from me was ever worth keeping. Um this goes back to what I was talking about earlier how music can be a powerful tool in rebellion and this is her little personal rebellion because and we'll get to it later obviously there's something going down in district 12 i mean like the first of all the mayor literally hits her she puts a snake down the mayor's daughter's dress And Sejanus literally says, there's no way her name was on that slip of paper. Like, I think this was rigged. Also, to the guys, I made a TikTok about this, so I will keep myself brief here. But to the people who use this as justification for their theory that like every single reaping ever has been rigged, specifically the 74th Hunger Games, it was not. I promise you, I could go into heavy detail of why the 74th Hunger Games was not rigged to draw Prim's name, But, but that's beside the point. Um, but yeah, so Janice is like, there is no way that her name was on this paper. And that is something we will learn more about later. But, But even beyond knowing about that, there's definitely something going on. Um, but Lucy Gray decides to start singing and I'm obsessed with her. Um, and she looks good too. So let her, let her sing. But yeah, she sings a song that's basically like nothing you can take from me was ever worth keeping. It's, you know, being about like, they can, you know they. I mean, this is literally after she's been like physically assaulted by the mayor. And it's like, you can do whatever you want to me. You can send me off to the Hunger Games. But like the parts of me that are important, I will keep. Um, Peter Malark would love would love Lucy Grey Bear in general, but specifically this moment, because that was also his whole deal going into the games was like, I don't want them to change the kind of person that I am. And that's like her whole thing is like, I'm not going to let them like take what makes me special and I, oh, I'm so obsessed with her guys you don't even understand but yeah she sings this song and not only does it like get the attention of the people in the Capitol and make them be like okay she you know this is a person to like look after or like look out for because she's not what she seems or she's more than just like the female tribute from district 12 um but it also is just like a really powerful moment for her and like in, ter- in terms of like In terms of like character introductions, hall of fame right here. I mean, this is so good. Like what better way to introduce her character? She's iconic, I love her. Um, I talked about music being a effective tool slash in many cases, weapon. Um, Another thing that, and like the series is literally called the Hunger Games, food is often the most powerful weapon. If you can use it properly. And by that, I mean like the, the capital, the capital always uses like withholding food as a weapon. Like we see that in the original books, there's that whole portion in, in catching fire where they basically like cut off the district's food supply and like basically are trying to like starve them. And the people of district 12 are like always starving. Um, and it is a way of controlling them. And that's what like the tessery is because they like put your name in additional times and get food in exchange for it. Um, but the districts also use this in the first war is basically like they do it in the second one too but they're just focusing on the first one for now um which is where we get to there is some cannibalism happening during the war um and one thing that i find interesting about this which feels weird to say but whatever um in the very first in in the hunger games um Katniss references, like, a previous games in which there was a tribute who would, like, basically, like, eat his dead fellow tributes, um, and the Capitol, like, shut that down real quick. So, like, the only, basically the only thing that's, like, a no-go in Hunger Games is cannibalism, um, which is, on one hand, it's because, like, no one wants to watch that, but also, like, they want to watch kids kill each other, so the bar is really low, um, but I also think it takes on a whole new layer when you realize that, like, that cannibalism was, like, an actual thing that they had to resort to during the war. And it is, like, it's, it's like, burned into their memory. You know, like, Snow talks about this memory he has of Nero Price, who's for so prices' daughter, or not daughter, father. <laughs> um, that's not really relevant right now, though. Um, like, sawing off a dead person's leg to feed to his family obviously a very scarring memory for like anyone who would have to experience that, but it's also, you know, it's very fascinating to me because, um, like that ends up being something that even 65 or 74 years later, it's still like, we remember maybe we weren't there, but like our, our parents were there or like our grandparents were there and remembers that was like a shameful time for us. Um, Because, you know, the capital people like to think they're so above everyone else and, like, hold themselves to a higher standard. But, like, during the war, they had to do some pretty gross things to survive and some pretty low things to survive. And Snow still manages to maintain some superiority about it, even though they, like, are left with nothing after the war. Um, But, yeah, it is, like, a part of their history that they very much want to forget. So I think that that is why that is, like, the one thing that they're, like, this is a no-go in the games think is interesting and also um we do actually know this is so weird we do know that the cannibalism scene is going to stay in the movie because there was like leap set photos of them filming it with like little little snow and tigress um which as disgusting as it is I do think it's very important because like is one of the more like gruesome and like dark things that happens um but this book is a book where we can't afford to like cut out all those things because it's, it's going to lose what makes it a good book and what makes it impactful. So I think it's good that they're keeping that in as much as I will think it's disgusting when I watch it. Um, speaking of things being cut from movies, let's just put it out there now. Pluribus is not going to be in the film. Um, this is devastating to me for many reasons. One, First of all, I have a question about where someone is going to get something later in the book that I will not say, Um, but it involves Chloribus and I'm like, we need to work around for that. Um, But also because Chloribus does canonically have a partner named Cyrus, which means that he is a canonically queer character, uh, which would be great to see on screen, but alas, he is being cut which, you know, it was great to see, like, queer representation in this book, and it would be better to see it on the screen, because obviously the movies are always going to reach a wider audience, but I digress. I just wanted to put it out there, but anyway, purpose in the book, in place, Let's talk about something that I also talked about during the original books, about, like, chil- the ch- people's children being used as, like, the weapon against them, which we see with, like, the Hunger Games, and then we see it in, like, their strategies later in the war and obviously in like the events that lead to Prim's death um but there was this quote that really made me think of that um where it says people were easy to manipulate when it came to their children but it's also very interesting because Snow also notes that like during the war there would be like starving children out on the street and like no one would help them or like people people were so focused between themselves that they like so it's all like, oh, people would do anything for the children. Like, the children are so important. But then it's like, in when times get hard, no one really cares about the kids unless it's their own. And that's so interesting when you think about the fact that, like, the capital is totally fine putting, killing 23 kids every single year in the games. And they literally don't care. But then, like, fast forward to Mockingjay when the, like, 10 of capital children is bombed and it's that is what turns the tide of the war against snow for good because even like the people at the Capitol, it's like okay but my kids were in there it's like you guys have been willingly and like enthusiastically killing the district children for 75 years and so that is kind of the idea here is that like and it's the same thing like people are literally at the zoo like looking at the tributes as if they are not human and it's like those are children too but when like but no one cares because they are from the district and they know who to see them. Um, or at the very least, they view them as like lesser than them. It's super messed up. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely, it is. Um, And there are just some lines in this book that I'm like, oh my god! And the fact that it's like coming from, in a lot of ways, from Snow's perspective, where he's like, yeah, this is like normal way of thinking, and I'm like, it is not. I promise you. Like there was one line. um, where they're talking about a boxes and he's like oh yeah my grandma always says like tongueless mer- workers make the best workers and I'm like uh okay girl no um I hate the grandma so much so so much which like obviously is the point but like god every time she's on the page I'm like please get off um yeah but there's so many lines that just make my jaw drop being like how can a person think like that and he's like that's normal and I'm like Ugh yeah I guess you would think that but it's really not I promise (laughs) um but yeah and then they're like yeah they're at the zoo literally like letting their kids like treat these tributes like animals and they don't see a problem with that and I'm like yeah okay like your kids don't know any better but like you're a whole adult okay this is not good or, or okay and so then they're like so it's it's like, they're, they're like, oh, we don't want to watch, like, watch some Hunger games, and no one wants to watch it, that's so weird, but it's not because they, like, are against it, they're all like, yeah, whatever, at least kids, we don't care, we just don't want to watch it, and I'm like, mm, you guys are horrible people, <laughs> um, shocking, I know that the Capitol is filled with terrible people, but it really is filled with terrible people, um, and it's really, like, deeply deeply upsetting um especially when like obviously it's it's different when you're in the original books when you're getting it from the perspective of Katniss who sees these terrible things and is very much like this is wrong this is bad I want to do something to stop it versus someone like Snow who is like yeah I don't see a problem with this in fact I'm going to actively support and contribute to this again he's not a good person even at age 18 does he get worse yeah did he start off good absolutely not he's already terrible and I already hate him um, but yeah, him and, him and Lucy Gray have this very interesting dynamic and it's, it's even more interesting based, like, cause we don't really know what's going on inside of her head. And I think that she is actually a pretty tough character to like figure out, which I, is a big part of what makes her so interesting. She, she does, makes this very, very bold move at the Reaping, And so it's kind of like, is she crazy? Is she like, is she just really cool? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Me personally, I was like, I'm obsessed with you. Like, I don't know what, the mayor's daughter did to you but like I'm rooting for you girl and also like again he literally hits her at the reaping, so I am on her side here um and also like hello she shows up in a rainbow dress sings a song like I'm obsessed with her anyway I've said it like three times but I'll say it again but you know she's hard to figure out literally up until the end of the book like her even at the end like her her motives for like the things that she does later in the book are never really made clear because we're getting it from snow and we don't really know and obviously he is very inclined to think of her in a certain way um and i think that that is is genius on suzanne colin's part and i it's a similar thing of like how it's how well she wrote how well she wrote the original books from katniss's perspective where it's like she is not the most reliable narrator um and so you kind of have to put a lot of things together on your own and it's kind of the same here it's slightly different because like I said it's in third person instead of first but like there is still a lot of elements of that of you having to be like okay is this person actually the worst or is Snow just kind of making it seem really like oh. like when Snow's like oh, I literally hate Sejanus so much and then you actually see Sejanus as a character and you're like no he's cool you're the worst like that kind of thing um and with Lucy Gray because Snow can never truly figure her out either and so we have to work even harder to see like what part of her character is just an act and what parts are real. Like she knows that she's probably going to die, but she's going to do whatever she can to not die. Um, and also she realizes that like having her mentor think that she like, or like be on her side and like having the people care about her is only going to work in her favor. So she really plays that up. And so Snow doesn't even know if it's because she like actually trusts him or likes him or because like that is her best strategy. And it's something that we as readers have to really like look at and and think about as we are reading the book. Um, in conclusion, Suzanne Collins is such a good author. Um, but yeah, I think that there is so, oh, this book is just so good. Like I, every time I, I'm rereading any part of it, I'm just like, wow, Suzanne Collins knows how to write so well. Like I'm just, I'm in awe of it. Um, And yeah, just like I, I was all, I was like wary of this book, not because I didn't trust that Suzanne Collins could write a good prequel. Like I'll literally eat up anything she does. She's never written something that I didn't like. But you know, it's like this series is so good. It means so much to me. And it's like, okay, now we're really moving away and moving to like a new time period, mostly new characters and it's about snow. And like, it's so hard to like read the Hunger Games and not have like Katniss Everdeen there, you know, or in my case, Zahima Um, But I really was like, so, so blown away by this book and how good it was. Um, and I will hopefully be able to say the same about the movie. Thanks for joining me this week on Tales of Panam. For those of you reading along with me, next week's episode will cover chapters 6 through 10 of The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. If you have any specific questions or topics you'd like me to cover, you can DM them to me on any social media or send them to my email, which is talesofpanam at gmail.com. If you'd like to leave a review or rating of the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it would be very appreciated. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be back next week.